If you were here for the uh, tour service, you know that uh, last week my family listened on, in on to the uh, service at Beit Hillel in uh, Washington State, uh, led by uh, Tim Heck. And that was delightful. It really was pretty cool. They do a little webinar uh, so that folks can uh, follow along and see what's going on and all of that, because it's, uh, it's tough. It's tough to, to walk this uh, walk if you're uh, if you're all by yourself. That's 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 tough. It's good to have community. Community is a good thing. So, with that in mind, we uh, we open up with uh, Terumah, the nineteenth portion of the year. Terumah means the offering, offering, right? Um, but we have uh, we have some holidays coming up, so I want to do a quick calendar thing for those that are not very familiar with the calendar. So uh, let's just make sure we're clear. The uh, the two big holidays in the year are first Pesach or Passover and at the end of the year we have Sukkot. And they divide the year into between Pesach and Sukkot or between Sukkot and Pesach, the other half, right? And we see in our Siddur that we're reading things that are only read from Sukkot until Pesach. Actually, from Shemini Yatzer, okay, from the eighth day, the last day of, uh, of Sukkot. So, we're praying for rains, the early rains, the late rains, that God will send the rain in the right time for the crops so that they will grow and we'll have a harvest and so forth. Um, so we've got those two halves of the year. Of all of the biblical holidays, there are, depending on how you want to count them, there could be three. They are Passover, Pentecost, the Tabernacles, or in Hebrew, Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Right? So those are the three biggies. They're called the biggies. They're the main ones. Why? Because they are pilgrimage feasts where the men are commanded to come up and appear before the Lord, okay? So how many feasts are there? Well, there's three. How many feasts are there? Well, there's seven. The seven are? And then the very, that kicks off on the unleavened bread, which is a week long. And then we've got? First fruits. First fruits. Some would argue that now. And then uh, we have 50 days later, we've got Shavuot. And then we've got the head of the year, the day of blowing, right? Yom Teruah or Rosh Hashanah. And then 10 days later, that kicks off the Days of Awe. And we have in there, on the 10th day, Yom Kippur, or actually biblically, Yom HaKippurim, the Day of Atonement. That's a class in and of itself. And then five days later, we've got the 8th day festival of Sukkot, right? And then we have the 8th day, Shemini Atzeret, which right. is 8. And then we have Shabbat, which is 9. Exactly. And then Hanukkah. And then if we throw in... <laughs> There are two biblical festivals that are not appointed times. We have right after Sukkot, we fall into Hanukkah, where we're celebrating, don't say oil, don't say light. Hanukkah means vacation, right? So they got a chance because of God's sovereignty, because of God's favor, because he preserved his people. They got a chance to rededicate the temple. Afterwards, we have what's coming up in 
just moment. one week, I think. One week and a week and a couple of days, ten days. Purim, right? Purim, which means gambling. Yeah, it means lots. It's you know, it's, it's, it's throwing the dice kind of thing, right? It's only uh, it's from New York. It's only two times in the scripture we see the throwing of lots that are uh, three times where the uh, throwing of lots are mentioned, and uh, one of them is, of course, in Purim in the Book of Esther. The second time that we see throwing of lots. Casting lots for the garment of our Master Yeshua. And uh, Psalm 22, I'll, I'll take those as a, as a combo. And then the third one, righteous lie. No, that's load. The last, um, oh yeah. Jonah. Jonah was Oh, Jonah, I forgot Jonah, so you know we have four. There's another one. The apostles. Yes, the apostles. Let's cast lots and see. Should we choose this guy or this guy to be number 12? Ah. Wasn't the covenant one there? If they would serve, I don't think that mentions that in there. I think we've got that in the uh, in the oral Torah, right? <laughs> in the midrash, they're definitely casting lots for who's because they had too many, right? right. How, who's going to get to go in and like that? And Zechariah won that. Yeah, there was his two chosen. There are a lot of lots, right? Yeah, there are fingers actually. So you put your fingers in all together, and the covenant kind of fix one. That's not like you know as well as I do. All the Coney were in a circle playing rock, paper, scissors. That's how they did it. Okay. All right, so Purim is, uh, is upon us. And, and I, I tried this morning to make sure you were clear that um, a couple of wise guys, oh, there they are, um, reminded me several years ago that I should pay attention to some of the spots in the sitter that are specific to the holidays. And I, I think we, we tried to recognize that, recognize that as much as we could last year, that it, here's, here's a part of these prayers. We only do it one day in the whole year. Don't miss it. One day. Some of them are only half a year. Some of them are only during a particular festival or, or holiday or something. So we want to be aware of those. So we're now between the holidays, and Hanukkah's done. It's cold. And now we're going to start talking about the, uh, the story of Esther and the king and the wicked guy. So uh, it, there are some traditions around this time. So I'm going to um, uh, kind of ask uh, Joshua to help me with this. Um, but before I do that, um, we had uh, someone sent me a note uh, this past week or two weeks ago and said, uh, hey, I want to do some works of righteousness. I want to help people. How do I do that and get the community involved? What, what's, what's the process? And the answer is, there is no process. So I feel like going to feed poor people. So what am I going to do? I'm going to call Jonathan and say, I feel like feeding poor people. Don't you? As if there would be something wrong with him if he didn't. And, of course, he feels guilty and wants to go feed poor people with me. So, I was going to say, what's for lunch? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think what we need to do is, is, is be aware that we're all a community and we're all doing things. And the Oneg time is a time not for you to ask the, the pithy questions. The Oneg time is for you to get down to the meat and say, what are you doing in your life? 
how's God blessing and you don't have to lie if you don't sense that he's blessing you say I, I just, I'm not sensing his blessing right now let that person minister to you let that person challenge you then to pour your life into others and you will then see God working in your life without question and you can do that as a team so I know just to pick on two guys that are fairly close to me that this bozo and that bozo went at the crack of dawn and were feeding people like somewhere in a bad neighborhood underneath a, a bridge or something and they're working with uh, uh, another community here in, in town they were feeding the poor and sure enough the poor showed up because this other community has been doing this for a while so they uh, what did you do cook eggs and make biscuits and just do breakfast right for something like that. Yeah. Pancakes. Pancakes, right? And it's cold. So the uh, the guys show up, set up the stove, start cooking stuff when it's really cold and dark. And then the women show up afterwards and start helping pass stuff out. And poor people line up to get fed. Praise God, right? So um, you might not hear about that because they might not want that. I mean, they're not going to... Guess what I did? That's not how it should happen, right? It, it needs to be... Um, you know, what'd you do this past week? You know, what, what'd you do on Sunday morning? Well, Sunday morning, I, I got up at the crack of dawn. It's one of the best things that's happened to me. I actually saw and interfaced with really poor people. And it, it made me recognize that God has blessed me. That I can actually throw clothes away and still have something to, to wear. You know, stuff like that. Um, so, uh, they're okay. If you hear screams, you can all turn. Um, I just hear bangs. Yeah, bangs are right. Bangs are right. We, we, it's sort of bang proof. Um. You know? And we're real good at getting the screens redone, so it's not <laughs> So if you're interested in knowing more about feeding those poor people at the crack of dawn on a Sunday morning, go to see those guys afterwards. Simple as that. What about ladies? What are ladies doing? I, I don't know. You know? Um, start chatting amongst yourselves and talk. And if you want to do something, if you want to initiate something and you don't know what to do, then, you know, Nick, at the end of, of something like this, you know, stand up and say, hey, I, I really want to do something um, for pregnant women, for poor people, for homeless people, whatever it may be. Poor homeless pregnant people. And all, also poor homeless and pregnant people, yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll gather together that way. And you, get, you know, just get a gaggle, shows up on the side of the room there, you talk about it in this. I don't think there needs to be a formal process. I think the scriptures are clear that there does need to be a formal process. And there need to be men that are chosen to administer the formal process of helping widows and orphans. There's, and that's true, pure religion. No question about it, right? And we see that even in the early church, that's really poor. In the early Gentile believing community, that's poor too. In the... Uh, First century in the community. first century believing community, uh, waiting for uh, the master's soon return, so they didn't want to go home. Right? Um, there were Hebrews, Hebrew-speaking Jews that were Israeli living there, and there were the Shmos like us that showed up and didn't speak Hebrew. They were called the the Greek Jews, right? So these guys showed up. They're visiting. They're staying with friends. They're, you know, that kind of deal. And as a community, men were, were called up to choose and, and help feed them. And, of course, they knew their people, but some of the other folks were getting overlooked. And you can read all about this in that fifth chapter of uh, the Book of Acts. Okay? So I think that's formal. And I'm 
I'm big about making sure that we've got that formality covered. And I think, um, not to toot your horn, but I think you guys are doing an unbelievable job of caring for the widows and the orphans among us. And, uh, and I want to thank Greg for at least a year or more ago stepping up and, and being willing to kind of handle some extra funds that, you know, has been given so that it could be found and distributed and so forth. It's an amazing thing uh, to, to pour out blessing in some way on, on a widow and have the widow act like one of the sages that we read about and say, okay, well, I want to give some of this back to the other widows, to the other people in the community. How do I give some of this back? That's, if that doesn't bless your bless you, your blessing is busted. You know what I'm saying? All right. So Purim, we want, to, we want to do some kind of works of charity. We want to do it as a community rather than individually, although individually is good. Maybe you can get a double dip here. Um, by the way, there's no tax letter for any of what we're about to talk about. Um, so what, what, is, what is used uh, in uh, traditional Judaism? How does that work? Well, is that your wine, by the way? No, it's not. Thank you. <laughs> Go for it. The, um, it's alcohol. It'll clean it up. It was my wine. It's not. Um, anyway, the, um, the, <laughs> this passage is Torumah, which is about taking up an offering. And the sages talk about the offering for the temple or the, or the tabernacle and the, um, like the tax, as it were, for each person. And Hence, last week, Shabbat Shekelim, right? Shekelim. So last week he read this passage, and you're supposed to give a half shekel um, for each person. And today, because there's no temple, the commandment is, well, there are shekels, but not, not in this no, country. Kind of um, the commandment is no longer in force, because there's no way to, to give them to anything. But in honor of the temple, in honor of, of the old command, traditionally in Judaism, they do today is they give the half shekel offering to the poor or to a charity of some sort. And so um, the reading the reading of the passage implies that there were actually three half shekel offerings, which add up to effectively one and a half shekels. Because there's no shekels, at least not in this country, unless you're in Israel, you can, you can do the one and a half shekel thing. Um, in most places, um, then Juliana was pointing out that they ask you to do half of your currency, or one and a half of your currency. So the most common currency in America is a dollar. So it's only a dollar and a half a person, so it's really small, um, which is one reason why we had thought it would be neat to try and pool together the resources of this community so that instead of going to a charity, or you know, five different charities and giving them three dollars each, um, how cool it would be to be able to find one charity that we, we, we kind of all, we could support somehow and give them 50 or 100 or whatever it ends up being. So essentially the idea is it's like basically a dollar and a half a person. Obviously, if you want to go beyond that, it's up to you. But that was just kind of the expectation. Um, and then what we had thought is we have two Tuesdays now before the fast of Esther, which is traditionally when you give the, the offering. So um, if, the, if the men in the community want to talk to their families or take up a collection or whatever, and would be willing to check or cash or whatnot to the next two Tuesday nights, um, and then we can hopefully find you know one charity we can all kind of push all of that towards. That would be great. We're still sort of working on finding the best charity, honestly. Um, there's a number of ones. There's good ones in Israel. There's good ones in America. Um, my heart, I would love to see being able to give it to a charity that's Jewish that supports the poor. I feel like that would be a neat opportunity. To give to a Jewish charity that supports the poor, sort of a double whammy on what this time of year is all about. And as Joshua was sharing with me earlier, to be able to do that in the name of our community sends a fairly strong message about who we are and whose we are. So if you're familiar with a good charity that you'd like to recommend, I'm seeing hands going up right now. Yeah, uh, there is a, there's a 
charity uh, or organization that's affiliated with the associate rabbi at our old congregation in Texas, uh, Congregation of the Science, called the Israel Benevolence Fund. Okay. Ooh. And the whole purpose of Rabbi Rabbi Ron, you know, is kind of his vision. The whole purpose of it is to um, feed widows, orphans, and Holocaust survivors in the land. Wow! Uh, wow. Believers and non-believers alike. So, um, and he started it uh, about five years ago, um, and he. You know, I think last year they raised about a hundred thousand dollars. Sent sent a hundred thousand dollars of either cash or uh, like they they shipped a whole uh, container of coats and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he's working with some messianic groups there to help distribute some of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a great cause, and and we support we support personally. But so that, that would be one I'm I'm familiar yeah. with, and I know Rabbi Ron personally, and you know. I, Right, so you can, before you leave, write that down on a piece of paper afterwards. Uh, um, Noah and I worked with Joseph Storehouse. And Joseph Storehouse, right. You were there. For a while. And obviously, I've seen the inside and some of the outside of how they run their ministry. There's all different types of, of giving you can, you can you know, donate that will be geared to someone individually. So if you want to support uh, the Ethiopian Jewish community, which is very poor, uh, lots of... Um, widows and orphans as well, you can actually primarily focus your funds towards that, or if you just want to help in their general clothing and food type fund, or uh, they have all, all different types of, of areas you can actually kind of tailor your donations to. It's a store. It's got a great name. You'll write that down to my cousin Janine, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a program that, that Jeremy can help uh, that I've talked with. He is, his house, he said, is almost right across from it, and he verified that it's an excellent one. It's called the Frat. No. And what they Front. do is and what he what they do is they take care of widows, uh, not widows. I'm sorry, uh, mothers who are having babies, and they uh, make sure that every mother has every supply that that child needs, whether she's married or not. And then what they do is he um, they even send you. We have several pictures of our little babies. They will even send you the picture of the baby when the oh, baby's cool. born, and thank you so much that you have given yeah. you know to this. And um, it's, it's just wonderful. They um, supply everything from diapers to um, cribs to even housing for moms that don't even have cool. housing. And Jeremy said it's right up it's there. The real it's just yeah. And cool. you can mail it. You don't have to mail it right to Jerusalem. You can mail it. Uh, they have a New York one. It's called CRIB. And then it goes to a frat, which is right out there in Jerusalem. Cool. Yes. So I have an idea. Um, if each of you who have a suggestion, if you could just write it down and give it to us. What we can do is we can maybe settle on one charity for us all to give to for Purim. But perhaps if we could maybe take all the information and send an email to everyone so that Purim is time where it's encouraged to give charity. So this is a traditional Jewish way of doing that. But obviously you'd be encouraged to give your own. Um, and maybe this would be an opportunity to kind of give everybody a whole list of different charities that they can give now and throughout the year. Um, and that is why you sort of have a recommended list. Because if you've ever looked at a, a charity uh, accumulation website, I was looking at one from Israel, there are literally dozens, and you can feel overwhelmed. So um, if you have any of these three or if anyone else has other ones, write down the information, at least the name, get it to us, and we can try and pull those together to send out kind of a mass list and hopefully then pick one that we can maybe give towards. Good. All right. Thank you, Doug. Outstanding. Anything else? 
I'll take that as a no. Exodus chapter 25 and verse 1. God spoke to Moshe saying, Speak to the children of Israel and have them dedicate to me a contribution. Take my offering from every person whose heart inspires him to generosity. Flame Foundation, um, Jonathan and I were uh, this morning sort of uh, you know, doing the, 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 the funny eyebrow on their choice in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Because um, of all the things in this portion, they... They chose that heart being moved to generosity uh, to grab onto as uh, as their choice for the apostolic reading. Personally, I would have gone to uh, perhaps some other other portions of the uh, apostolic writings. Uh, what would you have chosen? Hebrews. Hebrews. Why would you say Hebrews? Because of the, the temple theme and the implements that are parallel. Okay. Okay, good. Why Matthew? Matthew. Yeah, we, um, we were reading that list tonight, and uh, Matthew, uh, Yeshua, was talking about, um, uh, you know, do not commit adultery, do not do this, but I say to you, mm-hmm. and then he, you mm-hmm. know, added on, so that was also part of the, mm-hmm. Okay, that. okay. Um, how about uh, the sages? The sages chose the <coughs> Haftarah reading to be? Solomon. Mm-hmm. The first king. Solomon is building the temple, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you've got... All, all of the contributions going on for that. And the one thing in the Optor that really jumped out at me was when it said there was not a hammer or chisel or anything hurt yeah. in the temple as they built it. And I'd never, you know, I've read that before. Yeah, he quarried the stones in the quarry right. and, and, and just cut them to size there. So they brought them in already ready to fit. Right, yeah, exactly. So I, I just, when I saw that, it kind of it kind of jumped out at me, and I was just thinking, you know, just how that must have looked. They're bringing in these pre-cut uh, cedars and these pre-quarried stones, and they're bringing them in, and, and they're just literally putting them in place. But there was no hammer, no chisel used in the assembly. Yeah. Which I just I can't even imagine how they did that. Well, yeah. you know, it, to your point, if you've ever had your kitchen remodeled, or you've had some guy in there fixing the toilet in the bathroom or something, I mean, there's tools all over the place. There's dust and 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 mess, and it's you know you're like oh yeah, or if you're having the kitchen, you know it's like well you got to be out of your kitchen for like three days. You can't you know eat out or something like that. But that wasn't the case here. They actually did the deal. Yeah. I was just thinking about that too, and that we had talked about that, and it's just, it's amazing because because since that was the case, it wasn't like people could looking over there and be like, oh, look who's building the temple, and you know everybody sort of hears it and everything, but it's just every, each day it was just silently getting bigger and bigger, and then it was completed. It was almost like that was so people who were observing were more likely to think that that is something that. It was God's house. It was mm-hmm. God made that, yeah. you know, as opposed to like it was by the hands of everybody working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're just putting together what He's provided. Exactly. Yeah. And if, for for those of us who have had the uh, good fortune to visit the land and visit uh, the hotel, 
if you've gone under uh, the hotel in the, into the tunnels, you, you've rocks. seen the big, <laughs> you've seen that one big stone yeah. that's in the base of the yeah. wall underground. And uh, I mean, it's it's huge. I just want to see. Stone. I want to see the guy that brought that stone. <laughs> well, just I, I mean, just so, and, and you know the terrain, right? So <laughs> it's rugged. Can you imagine wherever they quarried that thing, trying to get that from wherever it was up to up to the Temple Mount, and then actually lifting that thing in, setting it into the wall? And our guy, uh, when we were when we um, went went through the tunnels, uh, an Orthodox guy. Uh, he was saying he, he told us how how much it weighed. It was so several several tons. I mean, like many tons. And he said uh, that there's only a handful of cranes that exist in the world today the planet. Yeah. that can actually lift the thing by by itself. Yeah. And you just can't. It's just amazing. Can't you hear the? I mean, there is only one mantra that they would be calling out to one another to make that happen. Come on, we built the pyramids. We can do this. <laughs> it reminded me of in the Gospels. Um, we we have the painstaking detail of the tabernacle, and it takes us weeks to read about it, and then to read about the making of it. That you can only imagine how long it took them, and and maybe you know God is helping, and it, it took less time. But it certainly seems like it. You know, with covering all this wood with gold, and it, it seems like it would have taken a long time. And then the Haftarah talks about um, Solomon building his temple, and he's got these huge stones, and he's covering them with cedar. Again, a very um, a massive production. And then um, it just, I don't know, it gives a, a new spin or a new perspective on Yeshua saying, tear this structure down, and I will rebuild it in three days. Mm-hmm. Because everybody's looking at the temple, and they know how long it took to build it and they know what kind of work goes into it and the, the idea of him saying three days is like well that's ridiculous he's absolutely crazy yeah that's good and, and all of that brought back to me the scripture from second peter and you also as living, living stones, stones are being built up as a spiritual temple uh, for a holy priest, priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Messiah Yeshua amen so, it, it's this particular portion I was sharing last night. Um, this was one. This whole actually, really starting from this portion to the end of Exodus, basically, was one of the things that God used ten years ago to, to start us down this walk. Because I would read this second half of Exodus, starting from here, and all the details of all of the furnishings in the tabernacle it's 50 cubits wide you know all this kind of stuff but I used to scratch my head and wonder okay so why do I need to know all of this why should I care but I knew I should care because it's in the book absolutely so the application to to this uh, to, to the tabernacle to us personally I think is is that study of, what, of that and trying to understand that was one of the things that led us down the path to in, in Torah. Amen. So. Amen. Praise God. Yeah, it's uh, as the. Uh, it, 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 oh, I beg your pardon. Yes, sir. Go ahead. I'll take. Uh, are you down for him? Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, well, just to tag along with that, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs this week had a really good point about how the act of creation. How that's like what you know a chapter, a couple verses. Really, I mean, it's just such a small passage compared to the building of the tabernacle and then even the description of the temple. 
and it almost seems out of balance when you first look at that. Like, this is some temporary structure that they took with them through the wilderness. God dwelled there. I mean, what, you would think that the creation of everything that we see would be more important than that, that there would be more of a description. But he went on to show how it was all of these things that happened to the, the children of Israel, like taking them through the Red Sea and all the miracles that they saw. It was only a short period of time after that that they would rebel or that something would happen and they would mess up. But it wasn't until they all got together, they started contributing, they started giving, and they started building something for God that they all stopped their the, the things that they were doing before and it made such a difference to them and it changed mm-hmm. so much so mm-hmm. just to emphasize the importance yeah. of building it. And again, community is important. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Unless we take or man take credit for the skill, um, this has spoken to me in the past, um, and you shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, and that he may minister as to the priest. And then in 31, Behold, I myself have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of, however you say it, of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put skill, that they may make all that I have commanded. It's like God, I mean, we think of it as such an intricate thing, and it is. But God equipped them, mm-hmm. as he does us, mm-hmm. to equip that that he has appointed yeah. for us to do. He will equip us. Yeah, I think that's a fairly good argument when you're speaking to folks in professional Christendom that believe that the Torah was then and this is now, and you can't keep the Torah anyway. Or that you have to go to a seminary yeah. mm-hmm. to, to, you know, to be equipped to right. do what that's God true. has told you to do. Great. Just to emphasize that, the uh, Adonirum, the guy's name in the uh, Solomon's officer who was in charge of all of the, the laborers building the tabernacle, whose name means, my God be exalted. Mm. It's that same point that even all of this, everybody who's working on this, this is all for his glory and for mm-hmm. exalting him mm-hmm. out of our own hands. Yeah. I guess back to what Juliana was saying about Messiah mm-hmm. building the temple. It just, um, what I thought about when I was reading of the half Torah is Solomon thought just because God said to David, because of the blood on your hands, you're not going to be able to build. And that was a real desire in his heart to build a house for God. Uh, Solomon just took for granted that he was the one that had to build it. But, um, you know, when you, when you think about it, Messiah actually is the one that he wanted to build, you know, a descendant of David. Because he says back here in uh, verse 11, 6.11, he says, The word of Adonai came to Solomon, saying, This temple that you build, in other words, I didn't command you to build it, I didn't... Yeah, but it. I, I, I think he did tell David that uh, he couldn't do it, yeah. but, he, but his son would. About a descendant of yours. I think he said his son would do his it. Son. Yeah. Okay. But David's son is also Messiah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's by, by grabbing on Solomon, we don't discount Yeshua. Exactly. So I think I think you're exactly right. You know, we, we see that close and far type prophecy going on right. where, I mean, it all speaks about Yeshua. Mm-hmm. All of it. Mm-hmm. Whether we see it or not, it all does. Mm-hmm. So it's a good point. A very good point. Did I see a hand? 
So if the tabernacle's built and they look at it, what does it remind them of? The heavenly. Reminds them of the heavenly tabernacle, only if they're Hebrews, if they're Gentiles, they never see that. Good. Mm-hmm. That was a ding on professional Christendom. Um, they see that God had granted the ability and the provision to do so, right? What else? From Egypt, yeah. Right? I mean, they're in the wilderness, right? We were, we were chuckling in, in the Oneg time about the um, all the poor families that were trying to figure out, like, why my neighbor had red-dyed ram skins and, and why am I lugging them all over the wilderness? Yeah. My favorite one is the, the tradition is that Jacob planted these acacia woods in Egypt and you're supposed to take one pole to stretch all the way through the middle of the of the tabernacle building and it's like, what, is that like 20-something cubits long? I'm trying to imagine the family that's like, I've got a 20-something cubit long that my great-grandfather gave me this pole. I don't know what it's supposed to be used for. Holy cow! I've got one of those in the garage! Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, no, we need one of these. And someone in the back corner, I have it! Look at this darn thing! I know it's But it's kind of cool because it's like this, um, there was a provision, but it's funny how, because you, you can only imagine that the, um, the people who had some of these things had no no idea why God had given it to them. And it reminds me of Mr. Martin's talk um, several weeks ago when he talked about charity and the idea that money that God gives you in excess is sometimes him setting the stage to give you what you need later, right. like saving money. Right. Sometimes it's so that you will have money to give to someone else later. Right. And I think that's kind of what you have here. You had they were taking the gifts that God had given them, whether it was from taking things from the Egyptians or things that you know Jacob had planted or whatever, and then it was only at the right time that they realized exactly why God had given them all these things. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, good. Yes, Johnny. Oh, I was just going to uh, say that, you know, when it was for men whose heart motivated them to give it away and talking about big pieces of furniture, they have no you know, idea what to do with it. They're like, okay, you can have it. <laughs> yeah. There's no compulsion required. I, I, I think that... Um, Once again, I'm reading about people that seem to think a lot differently than I do. I know why I've got everything. I know what I've got. I know who provided it. But I know why I got it. And I just can't comprehend lugging around a 150-foot pole <laughs> because Grandpa gave it to me. My wife would have that thing chopped up and in the bin going out on Thursday morning for the garbage guy, you know, in a week. We, we, what are we doing with this? We're not doing that. It's probably in my attic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, holy cow. That's what a different mindset. And, and, and to be honest with you, I'm focusing mostly on the gold. Have you got any idea how much gold we're talking about? My dad was a fireman. We had a meager lifestyle. There were times when we had to eat horse because we couldn't afford beef, but we never went without, and my dad provided for us. I can remember when my dad actually had some time off, and he decided that he would take the ugly-looking furniture that we had gotten from relatives and he would dress it up and for example there was a statue 
of something, and I, it doesn't matter what it is. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> and there was an ugly, but ugly, <laughs> picture frame. And my dad got involved with um, gold leaf. So he bought some gold leaves. And I guess, you know, you use a paintbrush. You know, you can, you know just a, the static electricity grabs the little leaf and you just kind of, and it, it kind of grabs on and, and now it's part of that. I mean, it ain't coming off. You, you had to pick that off. So um, I'm looking at that one because it's painted gold. But we actually had a couple of frames that look pretty snazzy now. Because my dad had put gold on them. That's not how they did this. <laughs> this, is, this is real lots of gold. So I can't comprehend that. I can't comprehend having, unless you know it's so near coming out of Egypt, that this wasn't mine to begin with. We were told to snatch it. It was given willingly. We plundered them. It must be for something. Surely it's not for us. And really, like my father-in-law has been saying for years, is there really going to come a time when you can go into the store, drop down a bar of gold, and they'll give you a loaf of bread? What's the guy going to do with the bar of gold? Right? What are you going to do with gold in the middle of the desert? There's no one around to give gold to. Right? So I can understand then, if you've been given gold... God must be ready to ask you for it. Why would you hoard it if you know that it wasn't yours to begin with? I can see that. Although I think that one of the things that's beautiful about this whole passage is it says they gave it willingly. I don't think it was the sense that they gave it um, like uh, relievingly, almost like, oh, thank goodness, take that up. Yes, yeah. Well, maybe with the pole. But (laughs) But I think that the, um, the sentiment is that I mean, the sages talk about this idea that they, the people said, I get to be part of making the Amen. tabernacle. Amen. This is where God's going to dwell. I want to be a part of that. That's right. And I mean, I think the most beautiful example is, we'll get to this later when we get to the labor, is the women came and said, you know, here are copper mirrors. Yeah. Here are the things here's, that we use to make ourselves look yeah. more beautiful. We want to put this towards something. This was important in our lives, and we want to invest that in the tabernacle. And so I think that that's one of the the beautiful parts of this passage. I mean, I love the fact that at the very beginning, God says, you know, willingly. I mean, I don't know about you, but very few charities today are designed willingly. Most of the time, it's a guilt trip. Someone handing you a plate, and you're looking at my neighbor put in a dime. I probably should put in a dime, too. You know, very rarely is it a genuine sense of a voluntary, I want to be a part of this. Yeah. And that was clearly what happened here. They actually gave too much. Yeah, yeah. Stop. Yeah. I think Josh was right. He hit, hit the nail on the head. Verse 8, it says, They shall make a sanctuary dedicated to me that I may dwell on the moment. That's that, that, that phrase, you know, it's like that the notion that the, the God that they saw descend on Mount Sinai and you know, consume everything around him, uh, and 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 they heard and they saw the thunderings, and he now says, "If you make this little tent, I'll dwell among you in the middle of your tents." That's a pretty awesome thought. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, that's it's it, it's it's much easier for me to imagine that level of generosity when when that awesome power speaks and says, "I'm going to dwell among you if you build this for me." 
two things come to mind. One, thank you, because I was wondering how I was going to segue to that, and it always just works. <laughs> you guys are, are, are great, having studied ahead of time. Um, I couldn't find a single sage that at least are in the books that are in my house, but all the sages are clear that he wanted to dwell among them, and he wanted to dwell in them. So that whole... Christian concept of God dwelling in us is not in any way a Christian concept. If Jews argue on that point, they're not orthodox, and they're not reading their own sages, and they're not reading the scriptures. Yeah, I was going to point the same thing out. Of course, we see uh, Rav Shaul, in particular, picks up on this concept. Know ye not? Like, duh. Like, this was common knowledge. Yeah. And and there's in the midrashim, particularly the the you know Hazal pick up on this yes. about the about about Hashem taking up residence in, in us, us, and they quote, "For it is written, let let them make me a sanctuary." Amen. Right. So that's why when we're reading all these details about the construction of the physical tabernacle, we have to, in terms of how does all of this stuff apply, right. Well, old, your ark, your menorah. Are you keeping your menorah lit? Are, are you your a table tabernacle? Of showbread. Your your altar of golden incense. Right. That's all of this at one level is mm-hmm. teaching us as our life as mini mish mishkanot. Right. <laughs> How we should be conducting yeah. ourselves. With with before Hashem holiness, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So these details again, as we go through them, we we don't understand them all yet. Mm-hmm. But at one level, I mean, obviously the Peshat, it's talking about the physical uh, tabernacle. No yeah. question. But at a, some deeper level, there's also this notion of it's just showing us something about how we should be how we should be conducting our lives as a mini mishkan, as a mini, you know, uh, tabernacle. Well, it, it should put a different slant on the whole ambassador for Messiah deal. Right. Right? It should. Right. Everybody understand Peshat? Plain, simple meaning of the text. Right? Peshat. Right? It's Peshat can never be overcome by the hidden. That's right. So, um, when the professing Christian church talks about Paul's writings that um, you know, don't, don't you get it? We're, we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. What's their focus on? The temple? No. No, the Holy Spirit, right? So now we just got to work on the Spirit, so now all the physical's gone. It's all just the ethereal stuff. But that just leaves out where Paul got it in the first place. Right. And you know, bring us back to the original story, to the original text. Okay? So, um, why, before we move on, just on a little bit of Hebrew, why in verse 8 of chapter 25, where the sages have said that this has to do with dwelling in the Hebrew, in his people, rather than among them. The bait. The bait. The bait. The bait, the, the, the bait in that in the uh, betocham. In your, uh, if you've got a chumash, it's the last word in that particular verse. A, a bait can be translated as in, or on, or with, 
right. as in a moment. And it's all correct. Right. It's, it's, it's all correct. Yeah, so it could be written, <laughs> translated into English as, they should make a sanctuary dedicated to me, and I will dwell in them. The text could just as easily say that. That is um, a, a, a valid English translation. So, All right. There are places it talks about uh, God dwelling, but in this verse, it doesn't say he's going to dwell in tabernacle. Right. He's going to dwell among them. Among them, right. And this is how the Apostle John chose to open his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us. That's Yeshua living out this very verse. Amen? Amen. Same deal. Same deal. Alright, let's talk about the Ark. That's the first section. If it's our comments. Okay. Um, describe it in one or two words. Golden. Golden. It's a little weak, but I like it. Box. A box. I like that. Reality bending. Reality vending? Bending. Reality bending. Who goes with a science fiction? Like <laughs> <laughs> the lost car. That's right, boy. Don't think they're coming up. Yeah. No, it wouldn't Don't fit. No, he's, he's saying it won't yeah. fit. It's right. yeah, we'll, we'll get into it. You're going to have to come back. <laughs> That's good. What else? Didn't it get really bloody? It did get really bloody. Yeah. Only on the east end. Oh, yeah. But not in it wasn't poured on the top. Yes. Yeah. Not in this one. We're going to come to that later on, but yes. You know, if you're picturing it as pristine gold, it started out that way. Mm-hmm. All right. What else? Well, yes. Well, acacia wood is in, uh, I'm tr- is it impenetrable? The it's pretty tough. It is hard wood. I yeah. mean, harder than oak that we know. Right. And it does not deteriorate. Mm-hmm. I bet it does pretty good when it's covered with gold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I bet it's still around. Where was it covered with gold? On the outside and or the inside? Yes. yes. The answer is yes. Right. <laughs> and. And that's what the sages say we're supposed to be like. That's the transparency of our lives. What people see on the outside should be what's on the inside. We should be the same. Yes. We should be transparent, just like the ark. Do you see what I'm doing? Mm-hmm. I'm applying the physical description of the ark to my life, to my character, to my walk, just like Greg said. But we should be able to walk through every implement that way. Yes, we go ahead. So a couple of thoughts. One is... To me, it was always striking that he starts by describing the ark first, right? Right. So you have, if, you, if we think about the construction of the tabernacle, you know, you've got a courtyard, the holy place, the holy of holies. And, and how is it normally described once we know it, Greg? We're always starting from the outside, right. and we have rising levels of holiness right. getting to the very focus or center of it being the the holy of holies where the ark where the ark is and where where the where the Shekinah would dwell above the right. the mercy seat. Yeah. So it's interesting that 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 God chose to start with describing the innermost part of the ta- tabernacle mm. as it is, right? First. Mm. Because it's like you gotta focus you gotta focus on the on the ark. 
Because if the arc ain't right, if the arc, arc isn't working properly, yeah. then all the rest of the stuff is for naught. Is for naught, right? Mm -hmm. So, and to pick up on on the comment about acacia, which in the Hebrew is shittim, uh, you're you're right. It, it's a very hard uh, wood Dense. that did, did did not decay um, easily like other types of other types of wood. So. Um, in in some ways, it was described as incorruptible. Yeah, I know that word. So we see perhaps Shaul picking up on this notion, where he talks about corruption putting on incorruption. Mm. Okay, so you have shittim. It's it's wood. It comes from a tree. What's a tree like? A zadik. Okay. So it's talking about in once in, in one se in one sense, one drosh, it's talking about a humanity because it's a tree, but it's a righteous person mm -hmm. who is put on incorruption, as it were, and he's covered in not just gold, but sahav tahor, pure, pure gold. Which speaks to having been refined with no impurity. We're back to the psalmist. Which is godliness. Uh, amen. Back to the psalmist who says, I think it was Psalm 2, wasn't it? Or was it 51? That he would not allow his holy one or his study to undergo decay. Right. So he wouldn't rot. Hmm. So so the elements that are used here, the, the shatim wood, the gold, the silver, the copper, all are significant. Are you listening to the radio again? <laughs> Good. Good. What's uh how many how many pieces? Quick, how many pieces? Two. No. Four. Four. How many pieces to make the ark? Four. Five? Oh. Six. Four, if you count nine, ten, <laughs> just to make the ark. Two, one. Yeah, the box. Two. The you got the box and the cover. The box. Right, you got the box and the cover. You want to fill the staves and all that? That's okay. Okay, the rings are part of the box now. And the caribbean. And the staves, the poles. pieces. It's all one arc. I got you. I got you. I think my my point was, and I, I beg your pardon for being unclear. My point was that it's it's all like the the caribbean, uh, you know, out of one piece, right? You know, we gotta we gotta take this lump and make it into an angel. That's cool. Which is easy, right? You just take away everything that doesn't look like an angel. So, um, so the the poles. You know, how big is the box? How many of you do kilometers on a regular basis? How many? How many of you do? Nobody does kilometers. Okay, then don't give me cubits. How big is the box? Two clicks. Thanks a lot. How big is the box? How big is the box? How big is the box? Who knows how big the box is? I'm talking to kids. How big is the box? How big do I tell? Is it forty-three inches? Two feet wide. Two and a half cubits. So what's a cubit? A cubit is cubit is eighteen. Cubit, we're gonna cubit we're gonna call a cubit, cubit is this a, about eighteen inches. It, a cubit is this, but if I get Jeremiah up here and we look at this, he's got a big cubit. <laughs> That's why there's a temple cubit. Exactly. All right. So there is a measuring standard, and in fact, we we hear about this when we read about the sages, like this the zugot, the pairs, right? The pair right before the master were 
Hallel and Shemai. And what's the most famous story about the two of them? About the Gentile that comes up and wants him to teach the Torah to him while he stands on one foot. What's he want? He wants to learn the Torah quickly. And he goes first to Shemai. What does Shemai do? Hits him over the head with what? A builder's, a builder's cubit. That's standard. Okay? He goes to Hillel, and Hillel um, gives him a, a great and famous answer. So, if we use a foot and a half, it makes it easy for you to do the math. How big's the box? Take the cubit and multiply it by one and a half. How big's the box? Second? How many cubits long is it? Two and a half. So that's essentially... So two and a half. Give me another half again. So it's almost four foot long. Right? Just two and a half doubled would be five. So it's it's less than that, right? So it's about four feet long. How wide is it? It's almost two feet. But two and a quarter. Two and a quarter feet wide. So it's it's almost this wide. And this long. It's not that big. Right? It's about four foot long. How high is it? It's about two and a quarter. It's about the, isn't it the same height off the ground that it is wide? So if you're looking at the end of it, it's a square. It's a square. Right? Right. The height and the width are the same. That's, that's a square. Yeah, I'm in homeschool. That's good. So that's a square. About four foot long. Right? And we got a square. And it's gold inside, it's gold outside, and now we've got a cover. Big cover. Made out of a single piece of gold. This is big. Big as in heavy, heavy right? Because you not only got the cover, but you got these two angels whose, I guess, wings are touching or something like this, right? In the middle, or coming close, or pointing towards each other, or they're facing each other, right? I'm getting all of the hands. What? Yeah. Give me the hands. All right, so you gotta, right, right, there you go, isn't that right? Right, they're facing each other. Facing each other and wings touch. Right, and wings. Oh. Right? So there you go. Right, it says my little arc imitation. So, heavy cover. What do we know about the poles? They go short ways, not long ways. They go short ways. That was funny. The picture, the picture in my homage totally, totally blew up the whole way of the lost ark image. <laughs> they go, they go, because it's a throne. It's not a, it's not a box. It's a throne, and so they go, they go the short way, not the long way. Let, let's let's rephrase it, because it's a throne, not a coffin. If it's a coffin, you know how the poles go in. We do that. That's good. Yeah. Right? It's not a coffin. It's a throne. So they're on the short end so that he's... You know what I mean? Like he's facing. So how long are the poles? Too long. <laughs> we, we don't see that here in this portion, right? That's coming up in the next portion, uh-huh. right? We, we actually put it into what we build. We've got this... What'd you call it? It's a reality bending. Reality bending thing. We've got supernatural coming in contact with natural. We've got God, the creator, coming in contact with his creation. And we've got something that's too big to fit inside the thing that he said it should fit inside. How often do you take the poles out? Never. Never don't. Hmm. 
Never take the poles out. I wonder how they did that that whole ox cart thing. Think they had the poles in there or just have the poles laying in the cart? Mm. David, later on? I bet they had the poles out. You just don't touch it. I think they had the poles out. That's what I think. They had had taken the poles out. It was no longer a throne. It was a coffin. Yeah. There it is. There it is. And it brought death. Yeah. The other cool part about the reality bending nature of this is the box is really heavy. It's a lot of gold. Yeah. Plus that wood is not light. The sages actually teach that the the box was that the uh, ark was not carried. The ark essentially hovered, and the people (laughs) held on to it (laughs) were carried by the ark. Because otherwise, it's too heavy to be carried by four people. Oh, I'll carry it this week. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Do I have to move my legs? (laughs) (laughs) Well, isn't that what the sages say about the very tablets? Right. Okay. The tablets. The, the letters themselves were suspending. suspending it, right? And he just kind of holding them from flying away, right? <laughs> we need to find that stuff. Well, okay. well, the, uh, that'd be cool. But the, the thing about the poles not leading, the, the sages had a cool commentary on this one, which was that um, the Torah always goes with the people, it was always prepared to travel with them, whether that was. Good. Okay, time to move on to the next place. Whether that was bad, and the sense that, like, even today in exile, the Torah goes with them, always. And the sages say, in the same breath, the Messiah is in exile with them. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Um, angels. Scary, according to Ezekiel. Scary, mm-hmm. right? And now we bring up Ezekiel, and that's where I want to go. What's Ezekiel say about these guys? Tons Four of eyes, faces, lots of wings. Eyes all around. Hands. Six wings, two pairs, right? Cover the face, cover, you know, fly, cover the feet. Right? They seem to have wheels, good. What, tell, talk to me about the face. They have four faces. They've got four heads? Oh, four faces, not four heads. Four faces. Right? So, face like a man. Face like a lion. Lion. Yeah. Egg. Uh, ox? Eagle. 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 I'll tell you the way we've got we've got some, a bunch of different types of faces. Those sound like the those sound like uh, uh, chayot, the the yes. living ones. Yes, like yes, and we see this later on in uh, in John's vision. One second, yes, ma'am. Okay, now if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that's the figure that is supposed to be on the mercy seat. I don't think that one was. Um, I don't think that the living ones are. It's it's a, it's a karuv. The the harrow they describe it here is um, having the faces of a male and a female child, the wings of birds. Yeah. Okay, wait a minute. The sages definitely bring us to Ezekiel, which have the multiple faces. Okay, but I don't think. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, but I have a problem with that, in that it says in twenty, it says and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. If they have four faces, you know, like... Or two. 
there's still the a front, faces there's would still be a front and back. Huh? There's still a front and back. Mm-hmm. They're, all They're facing always the facing. Yeah, all hands could be facing. All the four faces could be facing you. We don't Some, somehow, I don't really see oh, all okay. our faces. Could be two over here, three over here. Yeah, we don't. So we definitely they they knew to be able to face them, and that could just be the bodies, right? So they were facing. We get that word from the way the face points. Definitely. Yes. Wait, 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 wait. I had somebody else. Oh, just catch you up? Yeah. But to your original point, though, definitely not the greeting card, fat little babies. Fat babies floating around. Exactly right, which is where I was going to thank you, John. Although Rashi says that they had the face of a child. Yeah. Rambam says they had the face of the holy beast from Ezekiel. But then Rambam goes on to say that actually it was the face of the divine. Yeah, and that so. it was what Israel saw when they saw God. Cool. It's scary when you think about it. We know in the we know what was kept in the ark was the tablets. We didn't get there yet, but that's I guess where we can go right now. What was inside? Right. So we we got the, the tablets, which are a representation of Torah. I mean, they, no, they are the Torah. Well, part of it. Part, part of it. The ten words. Okay. Yeah. Right. I mean, but so they're representative of the, of the entire Torah. Yes. Yeah, good. Good. Uh, <clears throat> And we know the Torah is also known as Eschayim. Tree of life. Right. So, you, so in that sense, you have, you have in the Holy of Holies is the Eschayim. Mm-hmm. And you have two Cherubim. Oh, I've, I've heard this somewhere. Yeah. So we go back to Bereshit. Bam. And what do we have? We have after the fall, they're thrown out of the garden. And then two cherubim with a flaming sword guarding the way back mm. to, to the tree Ezhaim. of life. Mm. So you have the same, it's the same exactly. symbol, the same uh, picture here, yeah. where mm. where the the cherubim are still guarding. They're on the they're on down the veil, the veil too, right? <laughs> and only certain people with very specific protocol are allowed to pass the cherubim. Because if you pass the Caribbean without the proper protocol, you're dead. That's right. Period. End of statement, right? So they're they're there guarding the way to the Etzchayim. So I can't do that and I come into the Holy of Holies home? <laughs> or, or I can't, now, but only once. Or, <laughs> or I can say that the veil in the temple was was torn from top to bottom, so now I can just walk in wherever I, I want. Yeah. Boldly. Boldly. Yeah. Arm on the ark. Hey. That's it. So, God, how does it go? <laughs> the, the, the idea in Hebrews... Is, That's right. Yeah, not even that far. <laughs> I think the idea in Hebrews is emphasizing the um, accessibility that Hashem has given us to His presence in a real sense but that's not to diminish his holiness, right. and certainly in a physical sense. So in that respect, yes, we do have, in a, it, it, because of the blood of Messiah, access to the heavenly holy of holies, at least access in terms of communication. I think that but the imagery uh, given in Hebrews that you're describing would be absolutely nonsensical. <laughs> If you didn't already understand mm-hmm. how to get in there, and that when you're going in there, it's got to be the right time, and you've got to have blood with you, and it ain't your blood; it's somebody else's blood, right? 
So you can't understand everything that Hebrews is talking about unless you understand that. And this is, so then you can see that parallel, right? And this is part of the reason, I mean, like the sages encourage people not to pray in the bathroom, for example. Right. Because they say that you ought to res- give Hashem respect, mm-hmm. even in regards to prayer or thinking about the Torah. Yeah. Good. And, and I think that's something that, as Gentiles, raised in professional Christian, we have no clue. Right? Not at all. Not only do we profane his name, but we give him almost no honor, as will, you know. That's why when we walk up to the wall, we will face the wall when we approach the hotel, the western wall of the temple. We, we back away We don't turn around and walk away from right. it. We'll turn which, it back on. Which, you know, on that point, even even in uh, even in a synagogue in, in this setting, when the scroll is out, you face it. We we should be very just out of reverence. Cognizant. It's, it's just a scroll, right. in one sense. Nothing magic about it, right. but it's what it represents. And you know, in a synagogue, when the scroll is out, uh, you know, you don't you don't turn your back to the scroll. And you know what? So, in ancient days, you didn't turn your back to the king. You know, we'll watch movies, and you know, King of Siam and all that kind of stuff, right? And and you know, you'll watch the people bow. And, and, and leave the room. You know, and we think, wow, maybe they have a bunch of honor for the king. That's that's pretty cool. But we don't we don't we don't we don't seem to want to parallel that to to our own God. Right. One of the uh, one of my girls, um, older, younger one of the girls it was a female voice, I don't think it was Peter. Um, or Joshua or uh, Gregory. It was it was it was one of the girls said uh, that uh, this this portion, they kind of kind of realized that um, there was the God of the plains, the God of the mountains, there was the God of the water, there was the God of this, there was the God of that. <laughs> what was it? That was, that was you. I knew it was I knew it was female. I got that right though, right? You did. And but this this God's different. This God is the God of people. This God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the water, not the God of the winter, not the God of the snow. He's the God of people. And that's resonated with me this past week as I've recognized that I've got a God who's a God of people and and He wants to interface with me. And He's telling me how to do it. I, I got news for you. You can see all the movies you want, but if you actually do get invited to the White House, regardless of who's in office... <laughs> If you get invited to the White House, you will not get to see the President of the United States unless you sit down and spend some time learning the protocol from someone in the White House. Someone in the know is going to have to clue you in as to when you stand, when you sit, when you come in, when you go out, and how you comport yourself. And it'll include what you wear and what you may and what you may not say. Or bring with you. Or bring with you. Good point. Yes. 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 As you were talking about the gold and what you were just saying, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? He who has a clean has clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek thy face, even Jacob. 
goal being and it being a representative of pureness. Yeah, or holiness. Yeah, exactly right. I like it. Okay. So we got the, uh, what's in the what's in New York? Well, the tablets. The tablets. That's where it goes. So far, well, yeah. So far, all we know is about the tablet. Right. Later on, we're going to put in uh, the manna, the jar of manna, and Aaron's staff. So clarify for me. In the ark, you shall put the testimony. Is yep. that is that the tablet? The tablet. Okay. That's, a good, that's a good question, though. Is it a book or is it stone tablets? Hmm. Hmm, that's good. That's good. This is a dude, right? Your testimonies he talks about that in Psalm 119. I think he talks about it in Psalm 19 as well, right? Deuteronomy. The testimony of the Lord is is it pure or, or right or true? There, there's one teaching that there were two arcs, one for the for the tablets, and there was something else for the for the testimony. Okay, that's cool. So, which one's under the uh, British throne right now? Okay. Let's move on to the, the table. The true ark. The table. The sages said that the tablets were made out of sapphire. Tablets made out of sapphire. I noticed that as I was reading this week. Yeah, the sapphire tablets. Sapphire That's cool. Did I? Exactly, cool. right? The, we, the we got the right color anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't forget the uh, transistor that he saw his tablet. That's right. To lower it and let it hurt. Yeah, yeah. Daniel snuck that out so we could hide it away under the British throne. Well, until, <laughs> I, I think Mr. Upham was hinting at the whole thing, but just that the tablets were in the ark is sort of like the new covenant type, or even even just how it should be always. Like the, if if we're being allegorical, you're worried about, about the Mishkan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're worried about the, the, the because the tablets are representative of the whole forest. They should be in the ark. Good. In the ark. Mm-hmm. The ark being us, I guess, would be then the good. So. That I might not sin against you. How do I know sin? It's from his word, right? Sin by the Lord. Well, one of the things we talked about last night was in verse 21, uh, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give thee. And in the Hebrew, that testimony, it's it's et which et Olive top, right? Right. There he is. Um, so it's a, in the Hebrew. It's almost like et is the witness, or mm. the tablets are. There's like this mm. kind of interesting thing play there the, with uh, with the witness because witness. Um, you know the the other thing that we were talking about again, just kind of look, thinking through the Hebrew. Um, you know the paleo, the paleo Hebrew tav is a cross, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, it, it, if you think about it pictorially in the Hebrew with, with the paleo, you know, a wit, you know, a witness of the cross in the sense of the Messiah, right? Because that's what the Torah. The, the end Ultimate. of the Torah That's it. is the Messiah. The end of the goal of the Torah. So, right. So, anyway, there's just kind of some interesting things we were talking about. That is clear. That is clear. Hmm? Yeah. All right. Yeah, yes, ma'am. It's hard for me to see you from the glare of the pool. Yes. Um, just to bring a couple of things together here with verse 20 when it says, The faces shall always be toward the mercy seat. 
And then in 22 where it says, I will speak from you from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim. And it just reminds me of when Daniel and John and others would see messengers that came from God and they would fall on their faces mm-hmm. in front of them and they would say, no, my focus is not me and why I'm here. My focus is always goes to God. Mm-hmm. And I think that as a people, we're not able to go in to see it. But even if from a distance they could see it traveling, the reminder is always that the message is always about Him. Mm-hmm. And that the angel's message was always about Him. So even those who seem to be in a higher realm than we can understand right now, mm-hmm. they always come back to who is the testimony about. Amen. You know, in a, in a world that's uh, so focused on me and us and all of that, um, to have a representation, as I asked before, what did they think about? When they saw it, what did they think about? You know, God's provision ultimately is not just the ability to build it, the knowledge to know how to do it, but also the provision to be with him and to have that relationship. That's great. We were, we were talking about the whole English word mercy seat, mm. you know, what that is in Hebrew. Because it's so it's just interesting the I mean the word the literally would mean like propitiation or like like an, an atonement. Yeah. Which is so cool because that's where God is speaking from. So when it, it really brings into brings to life when, when Yeshua says like it's not my words that I'm saying, but these are all the words of the Father, right. that he is just that means with which God speaks, you know, and, and when he was here and, and it's just, just tying that into how that how, that's how God chooses to speak in the in the tabernacle. And he speaks from the seat of ultimate propitiation. And when he was here is the ultimate propitiation. That's that's cool. I like that coming together. Um, the Ark, before we move on, um, just to kind of close this up. Who, after it's built, put in place, who gets to see it? We haven't read this yet. We're going to read it in a month or so. Who gets to see it? That's not true. The high priest gets to see it when? And I would argue that the high priest never gets to see it. Why do I say that? Because it's dark. It's dark. And if there's not smoke, he will die. Mm-hmm. I, you may argue that when we get to that portion, he's got to bring that fire pan in there ahead of him, and he's got to fill that spot with with smoke. So let's discount right now the high priest. Who gets to see this ark? That's allowed. The guy besides the guy that made it. Once it's in place, who gets to see it? Those that don't carry it, right? Who carries it? Karari uh, and his family. Is that right? But somebody like that. It started with a K. Yeah. Okay. They, they cover it. Kohathites? They cover it, but... I mean, no, so they don't carry it, right? It's not Kohari. It's Kohath. Marari. Yeah. Yeah, the Kohath. The Kohathites, right? Okay, so the Kohathites go in, and, and what do they do? Cover it. They put bags on everything, right? They're they're bagging it. So we got a bag and tag. This goes here in the middle of the... You know, this goes over here. You know, so they're bagging and tagging. Then what do they do? I'm done. That's, that's my job. I'm supposed to bag and tag. Now it's back in tag. Now the Marari, Marari's, the Mar- those guys, they're in, and what are they doing? They're the schleppers. They're the schleppers. <laughs> they're going to schlep it wherever we're going. And when it gets there, what do they do? They put it down. And put it down and back. I'm done with my job. What happens now? Kothai's come back in. You got to unbag. Untag. And untag. 
who gets to see it? Because he can't see it. Who gets to see it? No one. Only this one family, just enough to get it covered. And I think it was the priest that covered it, right? I don't think it's the priest. I think that these guys, their only job was to bag and tag. Now, you got a question. the way they did it. Yeah. Because when they go in, the sages, they they go in, it was like, you know. Exactly. Right? They're going to, okay, I got it covered. (laughs) You know, like the Talit at the wedding. Yeah. Where no one can see the bride and the groom together. To me, we need to, we should notice this. We should remember this. It's not like this beautiful thing was built that's a work of art that gets to be shown off. Isn't it just like the ark? Metaphorically. Symbolically. Inside me. You can't see inside me. Nobody can but him. And I guess when in Samuel, uh, when Eli's sons take the ark kind of rashly and then the Philistines capture it and obviously... Yes. I mean, and the scripture's not clear whether or not they uncovered it or it was covered or whatnot, but obviously when it's used outside of its purpose, it, it'll bring tumors, big problems, hemorrhoids, all those rats. nasty things, rats. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, rats, rats were big too. Yeah, they even made gold rats. There were so many weird-looking rats. Yeah, that's that's not nasty. Yeah. I just think the funniest part of that story is the idol. It keeps landing on his face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, man. Sure, Wasn't it the tabernacle built from the inside out? So when it was being set up, couldn't they see the pieces? Well, like I said, once it was built, that, that seemed to be ended. I, I think once that, that curtain was hung. The Shekinah came, right? Yes. And once the Shekinah was there, now no one well, would see it. Right, but I guess they're just assembling it to take down the walls. They don't take the walls down mm-hmm. until everything's covered. The, that was my point. Nobody gets to see it. In numbers, in numbers the, the Levite, the... Aaron, Aaron's family goes in, takes the, takes the cover from the front of the, the partition between the Holy of Holies and, and the Holy Place, right? And puts that over the, the ark. You could argue that they don't even see it. They just kind of walk in. I think if you, you know, look at it, nobody sees it. Kind of drop the drape over it type deal. And then after the things are sort of covered up, then the Kohathite family comes in, and they're the schleppers. They carry it off, but they don't see it at all. All they see is these big blue things yeah, they're yeah, carrying. They bags. The guy who yeah. made it was probably blind. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, carrying the cover in, in carefully like that does remind me of Noah. That's right. I was thinking of Carrying the cover reminds you of Noah. Why, why the sons. The sons? Mm. Oh. So, yeah. That's funny you would bring that up, Julia. <laughs> That's right. Okay, good, good, good. All right, so we're going to pick up the speed a little bit and talk about that table. What do we got? Shulkan, right? Table. And you can never argue that Shulkan is just a Shulkan. What? Shelves? Shelves. Okay. Shelving, shelving tubes. Rom Rombaum has it leveled. Levels, okay. Right? So what are we, what are we what's the table for? It's for the showbread. Right? This is the bread of the face. Bread of the face. Right? That's what the what it is. It's the bread of the face. One thing about that that's really weird is that he doesn't tell them what the bread of the face is here. And you read the passage, he gives this really elaborate, intense description of this incredible table. And at the end of it, he says, 
and it's for you to put the bread of the face before me always. And then he doesn't get back to telling them even what the bread of the face is until like the end of Leviticus. Yeah. So uh, it, the implication to me, at least, is, I think if I'm reading it correctly, I may have missed something somewhere. It's almost as though they had to build it and just sort of sat there for a long time before anyone really knew. What, what did he put on this again? And it's what it's kind of cool about that though is that sometimes God gives us instructions um, with no explanation. With no explanation, but sometimes He only gives us instructions with the capacity to do them in His timing. Because sometimes we want to look at it and we got to go, He's given us this instruction. I have to do it right now, and we try and force it to happen without necessarily having the the, the resources that God wants us to use for it. A classic example of this would be even today in regards to um, one reason why like the sages don't build the temple now. They see it as something the Messiah is going to do. Mm. So they're waiting on him to do that. So in the same but sense... They're still prepared. But they're still preparing. So it's like in our lives, sometimes um, we can find ourselves being like, well, I have this good thing to do, and I need to make it happen now. And God's plan is, no, wait for my timing on the good thing, and I will tell you, and I'll give you the capacity to do it, when it's the right time. Sure, sure. And so I would say sometimes God's instructions seem out of order because I noticed that he gives all these instructions for um, the curtains yeah. and coverings and stuff. For the, but he hasn't even given them the instructions for the, the, the pillars that hold up the walls. There are no walls. And yet he's teaching them about the coverings that yeah. are going to go on the walls, which they don't have. Yeah. And he's talking about the whole tabernacle and all that before he even goes into the scriptures of priesthood. Good. That's all we've yeah. Good. His ways are not our ways. Yeah, I was just thinking from a, like a technical document standpoint, like could I build it if if I did it step by step the way it's presented here and, you know, I'm yeah. struggling. It appears to be out of order. Good. So, again, like we did with the Ark, describe it to me. How big is it? The table? The table. The table. It's about three feet. So three feet in length, a foot and a half wide. So about a foot and a half wide, about three feet long. Three feet long. So again, it's it's in that rectangular shape. All right. So it's about yay high, right? So it's a small little, like an end table, right? What? But dining table for two. Not even that big, right? It's a small coffee table. How big? What's got to go on it? Twelve loaves of bread. Now there is some of those little, little baby bread things my wife used to make for us, right? Or they have you seen what the sages, the way the sages describe these things? I mean, with the, you know, they're like it's like a puzzle piece, right? You know, this one goes in here. And, isn't that cool? It's, if you don't have a homage and you haven't seen the pictures, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. So uh, there's there's levels or. Or stuff that come up from there so that all the bread can be put on there. Now, what do the sages say traditionally about the bread? When did it go in there? On Shabbat. When did it come out? On Shabbat. And was always fresh. How cool is that? With frankincense. With frankincense. I want to know what that means. Yeah. yeah. If one of the, they were saying if one of the people, like, just after it came out, they picked, like, one little crumb off of it. Completely satisfied. How about that? Well, the, the Mishnah describes how they would the procedure. The kohanim would go in. They would have the fresh bread that they were replacing, and so they would have uh, they would have a couple kohanim who are standing on one side of the table to push the to, bread in. To, well, to the, take the other to take the current bread out. Yeah. 
so it's somebody else is on the other side to push it. And, yeah. because, and it was like had to happen simultaneously because yeah. the idea was the bread always. The bread of the faces had to be always before tamid. Always. Mm-hmm. So they continuously they all they had an art literally to how yeah. to do it. Yeah, what was that? I was just thinking like Mr. Possum music playing in the background there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But oh he dropped the loaf again. <laughs> I was just thinking about this. Well, that's the third time you dropped the loaf. Going back against the bread and God giving the command for the bread before he told them what it was. And I think that that's one thing that we see throughout this whole passage. I mean, Johnny's saying it doesn't make sense. How would I build this? Um, in fact, the sages even say that Moses couldn't even figure out how to build a menorah. And the idea being that it's not about a list of commands. Looking at the, the Torah as a guidebook for life is a good idea, but it's not a manual. It's a relationship. Mm-hmm. It's about this is how you interact with me, with Hashem himself, on his terms, in a way that is going to allow us to have his presence in us and, and around us. And, and so in a sense, it's like this, this whole list of extra instructions, which, I mean, to be honest with you, like Johnny said, a lot of them, I'm, I'm baffled by it. I'm thankful for these little pictures in the bottom of it. Because how what does this possibly look like? And, um, you know, I think the idea is to get back to, he wanted them to a degree to be, I think, a little bit confused, a little bit needy. Okay, God, I want you to show me how to do this. A little reliant. Reliant, because it's not about just doing it. It was about that process of doing it with him. My dad used to get the example of building a, a model airplane, father and son. It wasn't about finishing the model airplane. It was about building it with him. Amen. How many of you are to the point in your walk where you recognize that God is God and that it is absolutely impossible for you as a human being to understand or to know his will? How many of you are there? And recognize that if you truly desire to do his will, which is the third thing, that you're at a point where you, you that's truly what you want to do that you can now relax and know that if your heart is in that place and you've recognized the former, that He is God, that He must reveal it to you. Now, how He reveals it is a different story. The voice from heaven, the bright shining light, mm-hmm. maybe the guy next door, maybe your spouse. Oh, couldn't possibly be. Right? But we need to recognize that if we really believe He's God, then it is impossible for you to know His will unless He tells you. You just need to learn how he does that. Other comments on the table? Jonathan? I think there's. I think it's in the Gemara. There's a cool story about a convert to Judaism didn't like this idea of, of, of the showbread because he said that every every king on earth has fresh bread made from every day, every morning. But but your God is only going to... He's going to... Once a week. Stale bread once a week. And uh, and, and I, the Jew or the Kohen, whoever is talking to him, responds... So well, a it wasn't stale; it, it was fresh, and also it's not. I mean, your any king is consuming it, and it's just it's going through a system. But our God is. It's not just. It's not for His benefit that we're doing this. It's it, it, everything is teaching us a lesson of, of how we serve Him day, uh, in our daily process. Amen. Just baking bread. Yeah, it's not a it's not a rock with a big mouth on it with a fire behind it, and you're dumping food in there right. to feed the gods. Right? <laughs> this was not for God to eat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, so again, with I the, saw that Star Trek episode, by the way. So, with the tape on the table, yeah. showbread, the bread, uh, the, the bread being, you know, being that picture of fellowship, and the bread itself can be likened to the work. Right? Absolutely. So, so to to pick up on that idea, it's this is all really for our benefit, not not for his, because the the the, the picture here 
is that daily fellowship and that daily bread, the mm-hmm. daily word of God that has to be fresh yes. all the time, right? So that that's that's the, the picture here for, for us in terms of application, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that the daily approach and recognition that the sustenance is never ending. Right. I mean, it's, it's always fresh. It's always there. It's always before him as we should be. Good. I think it's kind of neat too, just that it is a representation of sustenance bread. You know, we bless God for bringing the bread from the earth, and it's and the very bread blessed. Yeah, and it's replaced and refreshed on Shabbat. Yeah. As we are. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Well, I was just, um, I'd always thought of the table as being kind of tall, you know, the normal height. Well, yeah, and it's like nine inches. Yeah, it's like, a, it's like a coffee table. It's like, that's close to the well, it's, dirt. Yeah, but um, I guess it's more like that one, right? It's about two foot tall? No, it says it says a half a cubit. Which would be nine inches? Yeah, you're yeah. right. It's closer to that. It's a cubit and a half. I thought it was. No. I thought it was like two foot up. It says a cubit wide and a half no, cubits a, high. So I've, got a, I've got a cubit. A cubit I've got a cubit and a half. It's a cubit and a half. It's a cubit and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Check your English there. Gloria, it's probably just a translation. Well, it says one cubit wide, two cubits long, and one cubit wide. And one, oh, sorry, sorry, okay. sorry, sorry, thank you. Ah. But regardless, wow, that's regardless, awesome. it's like, you know, it's like a, it's like a coffee table. It's, no, it's not, it's not like a kitchen table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't just keep it for my kids. That's exactly right. Okay, we move on to the menorah. In a nutshell, giant, major big, gold, gold. One piece, one piece of, one piece of gold. Impossible. How do you do that? I mean, come on. How can you start with a block of gold and get the gold that's down at the bottom all the way back up here so that you can go out with these deals? I mean... Obviously, it can't be completely impossible. They, they have one now. <laughs> yeah, well, we don't know if they made it from one. And it's a tube because it's not just there, but it's also hollow. Right. It's got to be hollowed out because the oil is going to go out to these flower petal deals or what, what do they call them in the, in the uh, version this morning? Knobs? Cups. Cups and knobs instead of calyxes and all that kind of stuff. Um, have you seen the difference between the sages? They're all confused. I'm going to scratch it. They're all at odds. Cups are facing down. Right? Are the cups up? The cups down. Is it like this? Or is it like this, right? Is it is it rounded like we see in uh, Titus's arch, or is it V's coming out and all of that, right? So it's not. I think everyone would agree the Christian picture of way out and not quite as far out, and it doesn't seem to be it. It's more of an up and down kind of deal, right? Right? Everybody agree? You know, we've got. Right. There's a drawing by uh, Rambam that has it as going the V, yeah. and that's what my uh, Hamash at least says. They think it's like that, not like the one on Tars. More like the one in front of right. the Knesset. Yeah, exactly. Yes, rather than the one on Titus's arch, which you've seen is just a bunch of U's, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, ma'am. Uh, just to add to that, uh, Gabby's dad was a jeweler, or is a jeweler, and I worked alongside of him for 21 years. And anytime he had to make a piece that was complicated. He had to do it in sections. So Piece at a time. Yes, and then solder it together, assemble it together. Right, right, right. 
uh, for this piece to be done as from one piece of gold and just to be hammered out Amazing. had to have divine intervention Amazing. because uh, there's no way that a human has the capability to do this Agreed. unless there is divine intervention so I see absolutely Hashem on the individual or the craftsman that was doing this to have given him that I call it a download for the, you know, all, <laughs> a divine download to yeah. be able to do this yeah. It's like, can you can you fly this? No, I can't. It's like Matrix. This is like right. Can you fly this? Okay, I can. No, I can. Yeah. It's like, make a what? Okay. Yeah, that's that's unbelievable. I, yeah. I like the sages teaching that. Um, Moses tries and it's just really not working, so he throws the gold into the fire and out pops the amazing yeah. Well, the cool thing with that is that it kind of plays off the same idea of what Aaron says he did with the gold. Yeah, cat. So he throws it, it goes in the fire and out comes his cat. So that's that's a bad thing that that occurred incorrectly with the idea that Moses goes, "I can't do this with my human hand." So God, you take care of this and throws it in the fire and it comes out. Yeah. But you said there was something additional to that, that or someone did it. We were in a discussion that Moses was able to actually make it, but even though he made it correctly, it wasn't as good as it could be so he threw the fire and God made it as made perfect it right. as it could yeah, be good. that's good okay so the uh, this tabernacle how would you describe the tabernacle one word tent tent, tent. okay Big. what's the difference between a tent that I would pitch and a tent that he would design not a triangle it's not a triangle yours is made of wood. that's the one anybody who's gone camping knows you don't want the top of your tent to be flat because if it rains, what do you have? Right? It's not flat anymore because the weight of the water is going to be on this. So you want to you pitch up a little bit. That's why we pitch a tent, right? So it's got a pitch to the roof and the water falls off. Not so here. This appears to be more like a box. Let me, let me go out on a limb and say it looks like Noah's ark. No, well, I don't know if it's rough upside down. Or... Yes, it's, it's a box. Okay, that works. Yeah. All right, so now let me see if you can get it. Without looking, can you give me in English, in words that a guy can understand, and yes, that was a dig on guys, which I rarely would do, but when it comes to color, we seem to be challenged verbally. What colors? If I just look at it, what colors am I going to see? Red, red. red or maybe crimson. Wow, right. Blue. Blue. Maybe like the sky. Three. Purple and white. And white. Right. I'm going to see white. I'm also going to see. Turquoise. Well, we got blue. We've got embroidered gold. So I've got gold angels, if you will. Embroidered on blue and red, red and purple. and purple. So the sages say that the blue and the uh, red mean different things. The red is fire, it's the fire of our devotion and the love we have for God. And the blue reminds us of the sky and our awe for Him. And if we put blue and red, the love and the awe together, we get the purple and the purple. You know, they go through this whole wonderful deal. White being ultimately the purity. He is reading sages. Yeah. So, I have uh, I have seen a lot of stuff about the colors. As far as I concern, um, as far as I'm concerned, 
We can say anything we want about those colors, and you're right. Because <laughs> the scripture doesn't say. All we know is that God told them to make it using those colors. Yes, sir. Well, I went into the stages also mentioned about the woven design. Woven, so yeah. interesting because they were saying it's, it's not like it's embroidered where it's the same on both sides. It was intricately designed to where the front sort of showed a different picture than the back. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting the way that they described it. Yeah, because weaving you can do that. Mm-hmm. And the embroidery is the only thing that was embroidered, I think, is the angels, right? Right. Well, that's right? Everything else is just woven. But if you embroider the if you embroider the angel onto a woven fabric, you wouldn't see the back of the angel necessarily on the other side if you didn't want to, right? You could make it so you didn't. So, anyway, cool. Um, one, one, just one quick thing that if you look at the tabernacle, what is absolutely the most notable thing? I'm just, I, I drive my truck into the desert and I come up to this Big thing. What do I see? Yeah, smoke and fire. Plume of smoke. I see smoke or fire, depending on what time of day it is. If he's there, but now it just got built. What do I see? What is the what is the thing that strikes me? Dolphin skins. Dolphin skins in the middle of the desert is always curious, but not necessarily would I notice that from the truck. What do I see? Back you driving a truck. So. That is really odd too. Good point. And I'm glad you picked up on that. It's a multi-porpoise. No, it's a multi-porpoise tent. If you look at the, if you look at the tabernacle from afar, all you see surrounding that fire or smoke is angels. That's all you see. You see nothing but angels. There's angels all around. There's angels inside, there's angels outside, there's angels on on almost every curtain. God is surrounded by angels. Now, the remez there is, as you read throughout the prophets and the apostolic scriptures, whenever you get some kind of glimpse into the throne room, what do you see? Surrounded by angels. Well, the, the other thing, the other picture is... Uh, we have these planks mm-hmm. that support the curtains yes. uh, and form the walls both of the tabernacle mm-hmm. and the outer the outer barrier. Uh, and again, the planks are um, made of shittim, of acacia wood, right? The same hard, incorruptible wood, and they're erect as as the is. The word that's typically translated right. to the you know, and they're uh, they're sitting in sockets made of silver, right? Mm. So silver in scripture is always a picture of redemption, right? Right. So again, you have and and uh, I think they're also, I think they're also plated in gold too. Are they not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the front. Well, well, well. It depends. The one, the planks that form the actual structure, I think, are are plated with gold and sitting in silver. The ones on the outside, I'm not sure, but we can check that. But the idea, the picture is, again, you have, uh, you have the angels, but then you have, is that a king standing upright who, you know, been redeemed, you know that that. Are there in the you know surrounding yes, if you will? Yes, the men can only stand because of that redemption. Right, and and 
and what's interesting is, I think it was in the 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 planks that formed the 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 front of the uh, the front barrier where you come in. I think I think it, those actually say they were set in sockets of copper. Okay. Right, and copper, nachashet, nachash, nachash, nachashet, I think is the Hebrew term there, which is serpent sin, because copper, again, is a picture of judgment. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that the the planks coming into the courtyard were sitting in copper, and you come into the courtyard, you have the altar, and the altar is not covered in gold, the altar is covered in copper. Mm -hmm. Right, all a picture of, of, of judgment, because... It's in the courtyard where we were doing it business. was pretty bloody, yeah. right? It was, you know, that's where the that's where the animals were slaughtered. That's where the blood was primarily poured out. So, again, in this whole drosh of of how you know we as we as the as a sanctuary, right? There's a there's an understanding that says uh, the the holy of holies, the ark, if you will, is the is the heart, lev. The <clears throat> the holy place where you have the the table of showbread, the menorah, the altar of, of yes. incense uh, is is the mind, you know, the intellect, and then the courtyard would be likened to our body, and it's in the courtyard where sacrifice takes place. Meaning, there's this struggle because it's the body that's tempted, it's the body that's corrupted, it's the body that's constantly right. You know, trying to pull us in different ways, right? <coughs> so you have this analogy of it's in the courtyard where the sacrifice has to take place, where uh, you know you got to spill some blood, as it were, before you can move in to the holy place, and certainly before you can, you know, go into the holy holy. So there's this. It's just interesting that the the copper is there yeah. speaking. Of the metal changes. Of judgment before you get to godliness. Amen. I, I think that uh, we we make we we trivialize the word of God. If as at least as the way I was raised, we try and read through the Old Testament, looking for these pictures of Messiah, and we we see only one thing. I'll see that that equates to this. Oh. Done. Move on to the next thing. Rather than trying to see globally more his work and his ministry, it's not just that he did that, but there is a picture and a whole story to tell in this whole deal. And that's to do exactly. And that's what makes all of this excruciating. What was it? Painful? You said painful detail. So amazingly cool. It really is so special to do. Yes, ma'am. I was watching a. A video yesterday from Kapad.org, mm-hmm. and he was the rabbi was talking about how um, the rings were so important because rings connect, and he was saying that um, the sages and, and what uh, they were talking about was the connection of the rings to the you know to the uh, you know the tabernacle and everything. Yeah. It was important because he said the foundation is important, but more that we that the connection that at that time the uh, people uh, the um, I guess the the priests or whatever uh, when they were building it saw uh, got the revelation that the connections 
uh, connect us, you know, to the Almighty. So he was so they, he was just making the comment that yes, the foundation is important, but is the connection more how we today then can connect ourselves to God? It mm-hmm. had to do with our connection to Him, mm-hmm. and that connection cannot happen without Messiah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. How, how big is this tent? How long is it? It's 32 cubits, right? So it's, you have 50 feet. Right? It's 50 feet. 30 by 10. And then you've got uh, you know, 12 cubits wide, so that would be about 18 feet wide. So you got 50 foot by 8 foot, uh, 18 foot, right? So how big is that? How big is the pool? The, the pool's 40 feet long. Tabernacle's only 50. Mm. Pretty small. Yeah. It's smaller than we think. And actually Solomon's temple in First Kings was described as not much bigger. Right? So, if you look at the concrete around the pool, that's about the size of the tabernacle. Now the courtyard, different issue. You know, you got you got more room there, but you're walking into the holy place and then the holy of holies and something. Well, I'm not walking. Just mm. <laughs> once. Just once. That's right. Just kind of pick up uh, on on your comment with the the rings and the hooks that are used to hang the curtains, and the the word in the Hebrew is. Vavim, 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 which is literally the word Vav, the letter Vav, but it's the letter, the, the word Vav, the word for Vav, right? right? But it's the idea of the, of the actual letter, which is a nail or a hook. Yeah. So, and it's interesting because the hooks hold it all together and so, and, and make it Echad. It says, you know, it, says it makes it one. It makes it one, right? Um, and of course, if you've done any study on the Vav, then you know there's all kinds of pictures, cool pictures and and, and uh, significance there. But the other thing we were talking about last night was how in a in a Torah scroll every, every panel yeah. is starts with a Vav because the Vav hooks that 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 panel of the scroll and the and each panel is like a curtain in the in the Mishkan. It's like a it's in, in but they're all held together. By the Can you imagine trying to write down a copy of a book, making sure that a specific letter started every page, the same letter started every page of the entire book, and you had to kind of write a little bit bigger so that wider, wider, yeah, wider, yeah, not bigger but wider. Yeah, that is an amazing thing. Good, yeah, the hooks and all that. We could we can go on and on. Yeah, the the other just one last comment on the Bob. The very middle letter in the entire Torah is an enlarged vav. So the vav is the center letter of the entire five books of Moshe, as if it holds it all together. It's hooking it all together. And that vav is in the middle of the word gahon, which is belly. Uh, and that's the middle word. Right, and that's the middle word. So there's just all it's kinds just of unbelievable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. All right, we, yes, ma'am. From curious aesthetics, I mean, I love how beautiful it sounds, and you know, it's the way that God puts the colors and the things together. But I can't imagine how that looked in the desert, even if all you saw were the hooks. Mm. 
and shiny. this shiny. Yeah. And and the white linen, how it must have just mm. glowed. Spectacular. In the middle of this wilderness, mm. and then think about touching those <coughs> hot pieces of metal. Oh yeah, ah. I never thought of that. But anyway, it's just an amazing thing that how it must have. Yeah. If, if they were encamped all about it in their tar- tribes, and it stood in the middle of their camp, not only did they have the fire and smoke, but it must Just have really the thing itself. Yeah, I never thought of that. That's a good point. All right, so I just want to make sure that we got it in our heads, right? So I'm, I got, I've got, or on the floor, I've got two pieces of furniture, then I've got three pieces of furniture, then I have one piece of furniture, two pieces of furniture on the outside. What have I got? I've got an altar and I've got a sink, a basin. We have none. Right? So the priest can wash their hands and their feet and they can kill the animal on the altar. I move past those and now I've got three pieces of furniture. One is the the table of showbread, the menorah, and the altar of incense. And they are positioned in a triangle. Mm-hmm. Which one is closest to the Holy of Holies? The altar of incense. The altar of incense. That's where the smoke's got to come from. I've got the light, from what I understand, on my left as I walk in, or as somebody else walks in, mm-hmm. and I've got the table of showbread on my right. Somebody's got to go in, trim the lamps over there. Somebody's got to go in, swap the bread over there, and somebody's got to go in there and burn the incense. So now Zechariah, he's normally working outside. He gets the opportunity to go inside, and he gets the opportunity to go past the lamp and the table of bread and gets all the way up this far from the Holy of Holies. As close as any man will come in his lifetime ever except the high priest once a year. So he's that close, and he's got to burn that incense. And it fills that whole tent, no windows, with smoke. And the Mishnah says, when that priest turns around and looks, the only thing he can see is seven eyes. Because it's the seven lamps on the menorah behind him. So if he turns back to his left, he'll see the seven eyes, presumably of God. Okay. Yeah. It's it's maybe the lamb though, the seven eyes. Yeah. So we got got the picture. Good. All right. Anything else? Yes, sir. Please. I uh, might not be quick, so just let me know. But when it comes to the tabernacle, it describes it once everything cooked together as like, and then it it shall be one, and that word is echad. But then when it's talking about the menorah. And also the covering, and it, it's it is one. It just says it's a single hammered piece, basically. So that word isn't used there. And but would you expect it to be there? Well, the reason I, where I'm going with this is the the idea because um, God is described as a chad. Amen. So it's just interesting because something that has a lot of different pieces that ne- isn't necessarily one is described as one in one part of the Bible, and then God's described as one, so I just wasn't, you know, that's, that's what the Trinitarian doctrine kind of believes would be the, that there are all these separate pieces and that they are, they function as one or something like that, so I just, it was interesting that 
it was this was a, almost a support for that, and I didn't know if there was a, an alternate explanation or an interpretation of either of those. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to take on the Trinity here, um, but I will, I will preface his comment and at least say, do you believe that Yeshua is God? Yes. yes. Okay. But Adonai Echad. So he is one. God the Father is one. There is one. That's as best as I can do. Is he God? Yes. I can leave it at that. How that all works out? I just look at the Kenosis passage and realize that he humbled himself to become a man. Now I got a guy who's still God. How does that work? Not a clue. Well, I mean, I have many pieces too. I have, I have hands and feet and eyes and nose, but you would never describe me as pe- but with pieces. You'd say, you'd say I'm a man. I'm one man. Uh, you would never describe me by the pieces, even though I'm made up of pieces. So just because you can describe the tabernacle as being made up of pieces, first of all, I think it's very... I think it's it's maybe illustrative to describe ourselves as the tabernacle. I don't think that's correct in describing God. Uh, it is not a representation of Hashem. Uh, but even if we were to take some method of trying to use that and compare it to his uh, to who he is, his uniqueness, or whatever else, we would certainly, although we might be able to describe uh, his mercy towards us, his his grace towards us, his. His uh, his judgment of of sin and disobedience, his uh, his creativity, all of those things uh, are parts or repres- or or expressions of God. But in no way would they ever be described as God. They are simply parts of the of the of the one. Just like I have, and I'd say, just like obviously with many infinite distance between us. Just like I'm made of many different parts, but I'm only one person. And the danger is in trying to, as, as Joseph described, is try to create a theology, mm. not on the basis of scripture, but on the basis of, of our own uh, logical platonic uh, or, or uh, uh, Aristotle uh, view of philosophy and describe things of how you could possibly come up with spirit, body, and something in between all at the same time. That's the danger, and, and instead of trying to do that, we should simply do as Joseph says: "This, well, let's just take the scripture for what it says." Mm-hmm. Amen. Spurlock the nose. There he is. No, my um, my focus. Go. Yeah, it's good. Good. My focus on the echad there, though, was less about God and more about us. And I think it's kind of cool and insightful that you point out that these things that were literally made out of a single piece. We're not described as a chad, and yet things that are made out of two pieces were. Mm-hmm. And I think about the fact that um, in some respects, I think that is sort of the ultimate unity that Hashem wants from us. It's almost like he didn't make us all identical and completely the same, where unity would be easy. I mean, these curtains in the tabernacle had 50 loops that had to be hooked together. That's an extremely long process of making these two things one. I think almost like a husband and wife, in a sense, too. It's like you have two people who are, who are very much similar, but also very different. And somehow God has to make them one. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's part of the cool part of God's unity in, in working with people, is that, um, and I think the tabernacle sort of symbolizes this, is that it's God's job, something that he delights in, is to take things that aren't necessarily one to begin with, and to make them one. 
Yeah, I, I think uh, that I, I don't I don't want to shy away from the, the whole Trinity question. I just don't want to go beyond what the Scripture says, and, and you know, as you pointed out, try and get into some Greek deal. Um, but I can see some beautiful truths about me, my relationship, not only with my wife, but also with my children and with my God, just in the words as He described them, and that's a beautiful thing. If I try and put all that in a box. Not necessarily God in the box, but just my description of Him, my understanding of Him in a box. He can't be in that box. I've already messed up. Because the definition that we have to start with God is that He's other than me. He's something else. Therefore, if I can get Him described down and fit it in, I've already messed up. That's right. He's got a spirit. Yes. yes. Can anyone see God and live? No. Did someone see God yet live? Yes. yes. That's a funny box. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't draw that box. Right? So, so if that's what we're presented with, it's obvious he's so far beyond anything that I can try and do to start describing him or, or agreeing or disagreeing with theological statements and words that don't appear in the Scripture... Is, is to me is now become the height of folly because now I'm arguing stuff that no one can say it's right or wrong. Yeah. Uh, and just to just to pick up on some of the comments that have been made, I mean, I think <clears throat> I think the the my current view <laughs> is that if we try to be dogmatic about God's nature. We're you know we're already on thin ice because we can't explain the unexplainable, Amen. and so you know so you know if 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 somebody believes that that God is three you know Father Son and Holy Spirit I don't I don't have a problem with that my question might be well why stop at three what do you, what do you do with the Shekinah was Shekinah not equally God was I mean, in other words seven you spirits know, seven spirits seven spirits I mean so you you can if you if you want and the we can is, play the number game right the point the point is we can't we can we can uh, we have to come to grips with the fact that trying to wrap our limited craniums around an unlimited God. We, right. we just can't go there. The only thing, the only thing we can be dogmatic about is Adonai Chat, and that's the only. Thing, you know, however else we want to try to describe them, knock yourself out. <laughs> you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna argue with you. It's just not hurt me at the stake if I don't agree with that's you. Right. Like right. Right. It, it definitely is John Calvin. Thank you. Know, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps we we get to a a, a point in our walk where arguing with another man who claims to believe pretty much what we do and yet wants to spend time arguing over whether God is 1 or 6 or 9 or 12. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm just not getting it anymore. Like you said, today, my perspective is Yeshua and His divinity is extraordinarily important. Okay. Absolutely. If He's not God, I have no hope. Okay. It's as simple as that. So, we start with that. Is Yeshua God? Yes. Okay. Is he the only God? Yes. yes. Is there only one God? Yes. yes. Okay. Adonai Echad, let's move on. <laughs> if they have a question, 
If it's a biblical question about a scriptural perspective, I'm ready to jump on it with both feet. But if you want to argue with me about the Trinity and how God is like water, it's ice, it's steam, it's water, yeah, great. You know, like you said, have at it. Well, you know, He's God. I mean, you must be able to come up with some awesome ways of describing this. Lord. So, there we go. Okay. I just want to make sure we're clear on the tabernacle. Because I think some of you looked out there at the pool, and I said to claim the concrete around it, and that's pretty much the size the size of the tabernacle. Now, if you've got a humash like mine, there's a beautiful picture of the tabernacle with the uh, curtains around it for where they're putting the outside stuff. So it took up more room than that. But that's the tabernacle. That's the part that was covered. Yeah, that's just the footprint. Right? That's the part that was covered. The whole deal was not. If you're going to burn up an animal, you don't want there to be fabric above the fire. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's common sense, but maybe you didn't think about it, right? The fire of the altar is outside. The spot where the priests are going to wash their hands and feet and there's water running out making mud all over is outside. The three are inside with a cover, with a doorway. The Holy of Holies. Okay? We're clear? All right. Good discussion. Jonathan, would you close us? Yes, sir. I mean, we thank you again for another wonderful time together, and we praise your name. And we uh, just thank you for a Shabbat and a time together as a community to discuss your word, to enjoy the, the oneg, the delight of Shabbat together as we exalt um, your your history of, of how you worked in the uh, in, from from creation all the way until now. And we we bless you and we thank you and we exalt. You and your and the Mashiach as well, and this and this week and all weeks to come. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. I love.